Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello there, welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. I'm Tom Marvin, one of the tech editors at Bike Radar, and with me today we've got Alex Evans, he's another one of our tech editors, uh, currently up in sunny Scotland. Hey guys, how's it going? Excellent, and also we've got uh, Rob Weaver, he's our senior technical editor-in-chief. Hello. How's uh, how's Bath looking this morning? Sunny today, you'll be uh, pleased to know for Bristol Rainwatch, hashtag Excellent. Bristol Rainwatch. <laughs> Keep your eyes on that hashtag just in case it does start raining. <laughs> right Get today we dis- <laughs> so today we're going to talk about uh, mountain biking's most controversial debates now if you uh if you follow mountain biking which i'm sure some of you do and uh, look at the odd forum you- you'll see threads and threads and threads of people arguing to the minuscule detail about stuff that well maybe it matters maybe it doesn't but we thought we'd have a a quick run through six of the most controversial debates in mountain biking in 2020 so should we crack on with Perhaps the most obvious one, and I guess the most hotly contested debate over the past four or five years, it is the good old electric mountain bike. Now, we won't dwell on this for too long because we know you're all bored of the debates. But, Rob, what's your take on the world of EMTBs? Well, I mean, having ridden quite a few now, I absolutely love them. Um, I can understand some of the, um, the worry around them if, you know, they're not... The bikes maybe aren't regulated properly or they're the, you know, the, the ones that use throttle rather than pedal assist and stuff like that. But for the straight up, you know, in our, in our specific category, mountain bike, electric mountain bikes, so pedal assist bikes, I think they're brilliant. I think mm-hmm. they can, you know, the, the potential they have to open up the sport to loads of other people. Um, and, and also not just people that, um, are getting older or might be injured but you know if you work a really hectic job and you want to get out for just one hour it means you get to go and ride the best bits not just once but you can go and do it 10 times which to mm-hmm. me just sounds really appealing al you've done a lot of e-biking i think um, and i know you're sort of working on some interesting e-bike news um that will be on site already um didn't you do something horrific with an e-bike in morzine a few years ago yeah, that was uh, it's definitely definitely horrific. Would be a, a good way of of describing it. I did a, an Everesting attempt. Okay, and it, I suppose you, you can't really describe it as a true Everesting attempt because it was using an e bike um, with eight batteries. Um, eight batteries. Basically, I ended up yeah, eight batteries in the end. I ended up going up and down the the famous Plenty Black Run. Uh, I think it was something like nineteen or twenty times during the course of a day, mm-hmm. ended up climbing in excess of uh, 9,000 metres. I think like it topped out at 10,000 or something. I got my calculations a little wrong. All that to say, e-bikes, absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. If you can afford them and, you know, like Rob said, maybe you're strapped for time or 
You've got some pressures that mean you can't always go out riding when you really would like to. An e-bike is like a key that just unlocks so many more opportunities for you. Um, it is obviously important to understand, you know, like the purists, like um, MBUK's ex-features editor, Ed Tomset. Not a fan, he was he? Oh, my God. He, there's not a chance in hell he would have ever set foot on an e-bike. But I think maybe that's where the problem is. A lot of people who dislike them haven't actually tried one yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, going, going back to your, your Everest, in, I mean, surely that was super easy. I mean, you've got a motor. I mean, you can't have had much of a workout that day just cruising up the fire roads, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just cruising up fire roads. It was easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was, it was, uh, I think it was took like 14 hours or something. Uh-huh. So that's 14 hours of, of bike riding. Um, and, you know, you're still riding a 24 kilo bike or however much it weighed on the downhills as well. So, you know, you got your 9,000 meters of climbing and your 9,000 meters descending. And the thing with e-bikes is that if you want to work hard, you can do that. You know, you can really push yourself and you can actually max out your heart rate as much as you can on a normal acoustic bike. Mm-hmm. It's kind of down to you, really. And I think they give um, your upper body a hell of a workout, don't they? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Like, yeah. I think one of the... Uh, I'll do a counter-argument for the, against the e-bike, I guess. And, and that is sort of, you know, we're in the UK and the access issues aren't quite so pronounced, but I know over in the US, you know, there's a, a lot of um, discussion over access to public land and that sort of thing, which is something that has to be sort of bared in mind. And, you know, the other sort of argument that gets brought up quite often with e-bikes is that, you know, if you can go and smash out, you know, 10,000 metres of descending in a day, that's that's a lot of, um, you know, potentially, if there's a lot of people doing it, a lot of wear on tracks that maybe wouldn't see quite so many uh, tyres going over them. Yeah, definitely. That's, you know, it's a really, it's it's quite a hard point to argue against, I suppose. Um, Feel free to know, have a imagine, go, Al. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. I mean, I guess the only thing you could say is that the number of people that own e-bikes probably isn't as many as the number that's ever going to own normal bikes. Um, so you know, maybe you're not going to get that high footfall. Um, okay. But yeah, I mean, it's a it's a good point. So and I think I guess, we'll. we'll oh, sorry, we'll go sorry. On. Just a quick. No, go I was going to say it. It could be that. Um, you know, down the line, if we see an increasing numbers coming in, it could be that the brands then set aside some of the money that they're making from that to put back into the trail infrastructure, you know, where these, especially if it's, uh, I guess, associated with a higher fleet, maybe if, if a certain brand supplies a certain area with a higher fleet, maybe then they're helping by, you know, redistributing some of that wealth, putting it back in and maybe, yeah, just sort of helping when it comes to, trail maintenance and, and keeping everything fresh for everyone else. I think the thing with e-bikes and, you know, whether you love them or hate them, whether you've tried them or not tried them, they, you know, they are relatively new things. So I guess as an industry, everything's still being learned. We're still not 100% sure where everything's at, where it's going. You see a massive sort of spread of different types of e-bikes, whether it's, you know, motor power, battery life, all this sort of thing. So Maybe we just need to let it mature a little bit before we cast too many judgments on them uh, and, and see where it all heads into the future. Right, next one. Now, this is something I think that uh, we as mountain bikers, uh, we, we did a podcast recently of, of what uh, mountain bikers could learn from road cyclists and vice versa. And I think one of the things that came out of that was mountain bikers really don't care about aerodynamics. And I think they probably should. Um the biggest sort of, well, I think quite a controversial thing a few years ago was obviously the banning of skin suits in downhill. But I think uh, looking forward, 
mountain bikers probably should take a bit more interest in uh, in the wind flapping past their baggy jerseys and, and baggy shorts. I, I guess that kind of depends what your what your end game is as a mountain biker. Are you looking to be the fastest, quickest person everywhere, or are you out there and just ripping jumps and having fun and kind of not really caring the world about your top to bottom time or your Strava segments or whatever? Um, Do we think you know, I guess uh, that... we should see our, our Scottish colleague Seb Stott in a skin suit then, because he is obsessed with uh, going as fast as possible? Yeah, you would have thought so, right? I mean, I, I guess when he's six foot four, most clothing's probably going to look like a skin suit on him because um, he's so big. Because you know, it must be impossible finding clothes that fit. It it is interesting though. You know, they they say that the the aerodynamics really comes into play at like I don't know, was it fifteen miles an hour, faster sort of thing? And you know, looking at downhill and and, and cross country and well, any facet of competitive mountain biking, those speeds are often achieved. So. Why? Why are we not? Uh, why do you never hear from a manufacturer whether their bike is has improved aerodynamics or whether you know why are we not running deeper section wheels, for example? Do you have any, any ideas, Rob? Or um, I guess when it comes to mountain bikes, you know, deeper section wheels, you might make some you know improvements with regards to aerodynamics, but at the same time, we're looking for a lot more than just that because. You know, those wheels are flexing and moving and helping to absorb some of those bumps. So if you were to make them deep section, I would imagine they would become really harsh and therefore take away <clears throat> while you have those aerodynamic gains, you're going to then start to lose time because they're going to be deflecting so much over the bumps and stuff like that. So I would say it's probably less about the bikes and more about the riders. So, you know, everything from... Um, helmets and peaks to the how baggy their clothing is and like we were chatting you know just just before we actually started recording this um okay yeah skin suits became banned which um obviously if you're looking at purist you know going from a to b as fast as you can doesn't really make any sense i i, I would assume there's a commercial argument for it in that um bike brands and clothing sponsors, etc., are ending up putting their riders into a skin suit, which they don't sell. And therefore, you know, when you see the live feed from Red Bull or, you know, back in the day, Freecaster, for example, you know, you're only seeing races and riders in kit that you can't actually buy. Whether you think, oh, well, I personally don't think that's a bad thing. Um, but obviously um, there has to be a commercial element to it. And, and maybe that is, you know, one of the reasons. But saying that, I think, you know, even when Alex and I were racing a long time ago, there used to be a lot of tailoring going on with the kit, you know. So while you could only go out and buy, you know, really baggy jerseys and trousers and um, shorts, there were people in the pits, you know, actively, you know, out there with a sewing machine, taking in extra inches here and there just to make it a, a closer fit. So, you know, you wouldn't get all that flapping in the wind especially on tracks like fort william where the average speed is relatively high um and also because there's no trees at the top for example you are so susceptible to being blown around and it really does you know just things like position on the bike everything it does make a difference it really does so i think we're at it we're an interesting place right now is while it is banned for racing if you look how tight the clothing's got with the top guys 
you know, some of them are wearing what looks like, you know, spray on trousers. So it is, it is pretty crazy. And it does feel like, you know, we're only a couple of, couple of steps away from those, from those, you know, from those men and women being in skin suits. So whether we need to go back down that route or not, I'm not totally sure now, but it's definitely, you can see that those guys have definitely cottoned on to the fact that there are benefits to wearing tighter clothing and that's why they do it. It's just that it's, I guess, the right side of the rules. I guess. Yeah, and and the, the, like the, the the tighter clothing that the top guys are wearing, you know, like Loris Vergier springs to mind, uh, Louis Bruni, you know, they're all wearing pretty tight kit now. Um, it actually looks pretty good still, you know. Okay, they kind of spray on gene effect, but it, they're not kind of reminiscent of the skin suits of old. You know, they still look like motocross inspired yeah. riding kit, and I think that's probably where the you know, the ability to maintain an appetite for just, you know, you and me as an average Joe going out and getting some of that kit, you know, it's, it's definitely still there, isn't it? It's so, a happy you know, They've got the advantages. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I was on a, a clothing launch for a, a, a brand a couple of years ago now, and it was um, Aero Road Kit, but I, I chatted to them because they, they sponsor a, um, some mountain bikers as well. And they did say actually that they were looking into... Um, kit aerodynamics for downhillers so maybe it's it's more that it's not discussed um openly but actually is happening in mm. the background yeah yeah but wasn't there um wasn't there a thing a few years ago um when martin whiteley was head of the trek world racing team they did quite a lot of investigation around aerodynamics and it was found that something like the, the shoe the shoes were actually one of the least aerodynamic parts of of the bike rider and by putting um covers over over tracy mosley's shoes it actually improved her aerodynamics massively compared to a lot of other things that you know you'd have thought may have been better um so, so you i'm know, pretty sure she we'll won fort william some... wearing those didn't she yeah yeah and and then i think it then got banned didn't it like shoe coverings or something weird happened with the rules where they possibly got changed or i don't know maybe it was a gentleman's agreement uh, maybe in the coming years we'll uh, we'll we'll see more and more of this uh, coming through. It'd be interesting if it is. I mean, you know, I think before we move on, my my personal take is you know downhill especially is the F one of cycle racing. It's you know super technologically advanced, and the idea is to go as fast as possible. So for me, I, I think that move away from skin suits, while I understand sort of the aesthetics and the potential for you know the, the commercial aspects, a little bit, it, it kind of was a bit like well. You're taking something away from the pure aspect of going as fast as possible, but hey, maybe we'll see it come back in it in a, in its own way uh, in the coming years. Yeah, I mean, I sort of you know back to what I was saying. It feels like we yeah we are a sort of a happy medium right now. I mean, you could look to ski racing for example, where you know those guys are never going to wear their normal you know average baggy ski clothes to go racing in, and and I agree, you know, really the downhillers at the top of the sport shouldn't be wearing stuff just off the shelf either. But I think, yeah, right now the the kit looks good and it seems like it's it it must be more functional in terms of um aerodynamics. And I think there are benefits for us as well. There is, you know, if you think back to, you know, all those years ago when we were in really baggy shorts, constantly getting them snagged on saddles and flipping over the bars and stuff like that. So maybe Maybe it's a win-win win story for, for a lot of people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think that our next point is is probably uh, quite similarly linked to this, and uh, we've got it noted down as form over function. Now, 
The idea behind this is you have all these uh, new products that come out sometimes or, or new ideas, and I'm thinking specifically linkage forks. Um, now, if something like a linkage fork came out which had as good or even better performance than a, a regular telescopic fork, I still wouldn't ride one because, frankly, aesthetics to me do matter. Despite what I think about downhill racing and skin suits, for me, I couldn't put something that, even if it worked better, looked terrible on my bike. Rob, if if, if, a, if a linkage fork was the best thing going, would you put it on your own bike? Yeah, definitely. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I sort of, I think I've got to a point where, um, while, while I totally understand and appreciate how something can, you know, a, a bike can look amazing and certain design elements can really affect it negatively, potentially, uh, I'm all for getting any kind of mechanical advantage I can. I'm getting old, my body's pretty knackered now. So... If I think I can bolt on a fork and make my life easier riding down the hill and ride faster, I'm all for it. Absolutely. Why wouldn't you be? Because aesthetics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're not looking at it while you're riding down. No, but people are looking at me and that's important. <laughs> yeah, they're going, wow, he's going fast with that crazy fork on the front. <laughs> not when they look at me, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know that fork might transport. You might be... But- Straight, you might get all your points. Be racing, you know, World World Cup soon enough. Hey, you, you never know. There's still life in this uh, old dog yet. I don't know exactly. I have to say, I mean, I do ride that. Uh, I've got a Lauf fork on my gravel bike, uh, but that is, yeah, okay. Maybe I'm killing my own argument. But on a mountain bike, where image really matters. <laughs> but that Lauf fork's grown on you, right? Oh man, that is honestly the best thing I've, the best sort of drop bar road product I've ever used. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Right, and at the start, I remember when it came out, and I remember talking to you about how it looked, mm. and you weren't convinced. No, so no, it's, th- it's normalised, right? You've you've it's... got you've got mm. around a way of thinking around the fact that you don't like it, and mm. now it works really well, and you're starting to. Well, you're not buying I into think... it, but you you get it, don't you? You're into I it. I think a bit of smart. Um smart industrial design has gone into into that so the, the first one i rode was like it was a white bike and then the little dog leg suspension a bit was bright orange so yeah. it really stood out whereas the one i'm riding now is like a kind of a, a stuff, cherry red frame but with like a little black thing so actually the the the, the colors they've used do kind of hide it a little bit um but yeah Al, would you would you stick a say like the white prst one came back and it was the best thing ever would you uh, would you go that far? Or what about those? Um, you know, the the, those, is it the structure bike? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the structure. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess the, the it would need to be proven to be beneficial first mm-hmm. before I would I would uh, adopt. I'm kind of with you, Tom. I'm I'm a bit like, oh yeah, it's got to look, it's got to look, got to look sweet before I can throw a leg over it, <laughs> because you're like, oh, you know, the confidence comes from thinking, yeah, my bike looks good, I look good, and suddenly you're ripping turns like you've never done before. It all like builds up together, even if your bike's working terribly. It's got a nice shiny paint job, lovely polished, you know, nothing crazy, lovely sweet lines. So I don't know. I think I think maybe someone like Rob would need to go out there, prove to me that it is quicker first. Make everyone look, look at him, and then suddenly, oh, you hear about the bike? Yeah, it's really good on the trails. Oh, okay, I could buy into that now. Yeah, you know. And then I don't know. I mean, there's no reason why people just can't jazz up the designs a bit. I mean, I'm not a designer, going to be first person to admit that. But you know, make them look good as well. Why can't they do both? You know, that's a that's a job, isn't it, of a industrial industrial designer? It's mm-hmm. kind of 
what they need to do. Well, I guess both of them. I guess a great example is convertible helmets, right? So in mm, in what we yeah. do, mountain biking. Do you remember? Was it the switchblade? Would would have been one of the first. Oh, remember all too well. Yeah, my eyes are <laughs> so, bleeding. I mean, and and I guess you know it wasn't just down to the fact that uh, it looked a little bit quirky back then, but also you know, I think we used to spot them loads out in France, out in the Alps, riding out there, mm. and while. I could see, you know, there was a benefit to them. They weren't rated to the same as a full face helmet. And if you're on a chairlift and you're essentially just running downhill, I, they, they weren't as beneficial. I'd, you know, much rather keep my head safer in a in a full on downhill helmet. But obviously, things have progressed. You know, yeah. Enduro exists now, which it, it didn't when that helmet was launched. And so it feels like we're in a really good place now where, you can confidently go out and buy three or four different convertible helmets that look wicked and serve a really functional purpose, you know? Mm. So maybe that will happen with linkage forks or, or linkage yeah, bikes. Yeah, well, maybe. Yeah. I guess the linkage bike worth... thing is, is more problematic because of compatibility issues and, you know, because it's a, it's a whole entity, you know, it's that one package that you have to buy into, whereas the linkage fork yeah. is still essentially an aftermarket product that you bought onto an existing frame. But there's yeah. no reason why those things can't develop over time. Be more yeah, open-minded, I mean, you know, boys. Come on. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's just got to look good, isn't it? And that's certainly something worth noting now is the, the current gyro switchblade looks brilliant. You know, it looks amazing. Everyone loves wearing them. They think they look fantastic. So, you know, top exactly. works there, gyro, for turning that one around. There you go. In, in terms of... Um, things looking good and, and what have you we there's been a big shift uh, over the past few years to super long low slack bikes um i guess mondraker with their four geometries an early pioneer and then you've you've had the likes of geometron and pole really pushing those boundaries now our, our colleague seb stott is obviously um he's a tall man but he's also a big fan of these long bikes and you know he, he loves going down steep hills as fast as he can um, I would take a, a counterpoint. I, I like a, a little whippy bike. So, progressive geometry, super long bikes. People are still sort of umming and ahhing which is best. You know, Robert, you, you've had a geometron for quite a while, and I know you do like it, but you ride also bikes that maybe aren't quite so extreme. Yeah, <clears throat> I think um, I really get on with the geometron. I played around with it a little bit, and um, in fact, I did steepen the head angle a little mm-hmm. bit um so it's now a really steep 63 i think it's 63.2 degrees um but no um it is a big bike and you definitely ride it in a you need to ride it in a different way mm-hmm. but it feels like the rest of the industry is kind of catching up and going down that route i think um there's definitely a sweet spot and we're lucky that we can play around with different bikes and, and ride a uh, a wide variety of different sizes and you know reach lengths chainstay lengths etc where we can you know be a bit more picky and choosy and find the sweet spot that works for us but obviously not everyone can and i think you know if you want to go out and ride really fast a longer bike is going to ha- help you i also think it'll give you more confidence if you're maybe newer to the sport i think it can really help in that in that regard maybe not so much with a super slack head angle it because you you know you need to have an understanding of how you already ride in order to kind of get the most of it i think but 
Yeah, I think it's it's all about the geometry needs to be right and it needs to be well balanced. And and even I think some of the bikes, some of the brands that have tried to go really long haven't necessarily achieved it. It doesn't necessarily feel like it's always the most balanced bike to ride. But there's certainly some out there which are fantastic and, and still, even though they're really long, they're still super fun to ride. You can still throw them around and, you know, do everything you can on a shorter bike. But you also have the added benefit that when you start to go really fast, you feel really secure and safe on it. Do you, do you think that those kind of super long bikes work everywhere, Al? Or, or do you think they're fairly specialist machines? My, my take on it would be that they work very good on very steep stuff, but on flatter, more mellow terrain, they, they become a bit of a bit of a schlep around, you know? I, th- I think it kind of gets, it's kind of a similar vein to what Rob was saying. There's like a tipping point where, you know, say you're a beginner or maybe not as an experienced rider, you can definitely reap a load of benefits from having a longer bike because it makes it easier in inverted commas. You know, it's more stable. Your small little erroneous inputs are going to have a much smaller effect on the bike, changing direction, shifting weight. So you can concentrate a bit more on actually trying to understand what it is that you're doing. And then you start getting really extreme. And, you know, like Rob said, you need to have an understanding of how to ride it. And I think that kind of goes goes to what you say, Tom, like if you're hitting the more extreme gnarly tracks, you probably already have an understanding of, of how you can, you know, tackle it and how you can ride the bike in a way to get the best benefit from it. Um, I, th- I think that they're still like good on, on kind of short, uh, less steep, flatter tracks with tighter turns and stuff. But you, you do have to work a bit harder. I, th- I think, you, you know, you have to ride it in a different way. Um, and that's probably illustrated quite well with people like Josh Bryceland, who used to ride a much smaller downhill bike than he should. And now is, you know, riding a Cannondale habit that looks tiny in all the videos you see of him. And he's out there shredding turns and ripping corners and riding a certain style that's maybe beneficial to have a really short bike on. Yeah, I guess if, you know, if these super big bikes are just as manoeuvrable, you know, as, as some people sort of say, you know, why, why aren't BMXs on on massive bikes as well for that for all those sort of real tight stuff? But I don't know if that if that's a, a valid argument or not. It's confused me a little bit. But um... <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess you know, there's always going to be certain terrain where it's you know it, it could it could be that the long bike is going to have negative effects on the riding. You know, if you ride some of the stuff in the Maritime Alps, you know these non-stop switchbacks you know riding a shorter bike through there which is originally why the you know the first hope hb160 mm-hmm. was designed to be as short as it was because the designer lives um up in those mountains and it is littered with those hairpins and dragging a big long bike around those it just isn't as easy it's totally doable but you know you can just slide a dinky little bike around no problem but again you know it's it's weighing up. If you're out to buy a new bike, it's weighing up. What do you want out of it? You know, how often are you going to be riding those switchbacks in the Alps? You know, yeah. maybe maybe once a year at max. So you're just willing to put up with it. Um, I still think, I still think we're in a much better place than we were a couple of years ago. With the average, you know, when you look at the average reach numbers for mediums and larges creeping up as much as they have, even the even those that don't look extreme right now if you went back five years ago it you know been totally unheard of i think um 
and I don't think they have it, they'll have any kind of detrimental effect on how they write. You've still got the outliers, like you've already mentioned, Pole and Geometron and, and stuff like that, which are at the you know much longer end of that scale. Um, but it's, I think it's really encouraging to see so many you know mainstream brands going down that route and extending the bikes that much. And and you know even the likes of what's nice is you know even um, I think uh, what Santa Cruz have done, just done with the fifty ten with the proportional chainstays is something that. Um, Norco have done for a long, long time, and um, small. Generally, it tends to be smaller brands that do it, but I think that's really important because you know you don't want to. I, I guess for me, I'm always lucky because I'm a medium. I just ride medium bikes for the most part, so I feel like the generally I'm in a more balanced, better position than most. Whereas you know you go on you go on the launches and you ride with someone like Seb who's six foot three. And he might be riding a bike with a reach of, you know, 500, maybe over 500 mil, yet the chain stays exactly the same length as mine mm-hmm. on a medium, which just seems crazy. So I think that's a, that's another sort of a key part of it. Just going longer at the front doesn't really make any sense. You kind of need to, it needs to grow proportionally for it to work properly, for it to be really well balanced. And it feels like we're slowly getting to that point which is really positive. I guess the, there's a there's a cost implication with that, of course, because instead of making one back end to fit all five front ends, they've then got to make five back ends to fit five front ends, which might have other impacts along the way. So it, there's probably going to be some cost, um, extra cost to do that, but probably worth it. Yeah, I reckon. And and brands can do it in a, in a, you know, in a smart way. It doesn't have to be necessarily, um, they, they don't necessarily have to make totally new back ends as it were it can you can you you're talking about the rear center so it's the center of the bottom bracket axle to the center of the rear axle so it's how you change those in relation to one another doesn't necessarily have to come from physically growing the swing arm as such so yeah it brands can get around it in in various different ways you know geometron have uh you know chips to extend or you can potentially use um overlaced chips in the dropouts to give you varying sizes so uh, yeah there's there's ways around it i think okay okay all right well um we obviously see a lot of new bikes and we go on a lot of you know new bike launches and this sort of thing and we're very lucky in that quite often we we get put on the the top end bikes that the these brands are making though not exclusively um you know we don't always ride the the halo models but these halo models exist you know whether a 10 grand mountain bike is no longer a, a thing of shock because everyone's kind of got one. Uh, a lot of people seem to think that the bike industry maybe is, is taking the mick out of out of the punters by offering these £10,000 bikes. Um, Al, what's your take on it all? Oh, yeah, I mean, £10,000 is a lot of money. We could literally buy a car of, for that. Yeah, you buy a very nice car for that. You could probably buy a, a Dacia Sandero. A brand new one for for ten grand, I'd have thought, with a five year warranty, and sixty thousand miles. <laughs> Are you a salesman? Sorry, um, no. For, uh, yeah, so guys, uh, commission commission basis here. Um, yeah, ten, ten grand is a lot. It's a lot yet. of money. Um, yeah, it, it makes it makes um, Calibers um, triple B 
um, you know, offerings from Canyon, YT, it makes them look even more appetizing when, you know, you see those price tags. And if you're just looking at the price tag and ignoring everything else, you know, it's, it's a daunting figure. It's a daunting amount of money to be spending on a bike. Um, I guess the question I would ask is how much more performance do you get for that increase in money? And, you know, I guess, or maybe not even performance, maybe enjoyment would be a better way of quantifying it. Um, and maybe depending on what the answer is to that question would be able to justify the expense. You know, it's uh, it's a tricky one. Mm-hmm. It's a really tricky one. I guess the analogy I sort of often come back with is, you know, we understand, you know, I think understandably, I'm not sort of going to blittle, but, you know, when you see a comment on, on a YouTube video saying, oh, 10 grand, that's disgusting, X, Y, Z, it's like, well... I don't go on car channels on YouTube and say Ferrari like a million pounds. That's you know they're taking the you know like the, these bikes are like the absolute in theory or at least should be the absolute top end, the best of the best, and they exist to sort of almost um, showcase what can be done. You know, like it, it, if you're looking at for cars, you know, like if you drive a Ferrari down a motorway, you can drive that. Dutchess Sandera down the motorway at 70 miles an hour as well. What are you getting extra other than the fact that it's a really premium, beautiful product that is, you know, people want to see and, uh, and want to enjoy? And why shouldn't we be able to do that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a hard one, isn't it? I mean, bike companies aren't selling anywhere near the volume um, that they do in the automotive industry. Um, and those bikes do cost a lot of money to develop. There's a lot of R&D that goes into it. And yeah, you know, the ones that generally that we'll see and ride on the launches will normally be the top end, the sort of the halo product. And, you know, they want to make that bike the best it can be. So it might mean that they need to put the, you know, 13, 1400 pound fork on there. You know, the most expensive rear shock, the best tires, best wheels, all of those things. And it does obviously add up. Um, back to Al's point, yeah. It, I, I think if you've got a nine gram bike versus a four and a half gram bike, you know, same frame, that jump isn't going to double your speed. It's not going to double your enjoyment. It might be more refined. It might have, you know, some more desirable ride qualities. And even if they're only small, they might be a little bit better. But I guess my take on it is, Great, you know, launch that top end one, but as long as you're looking lower down, um, where, you know, where I guess they're going to sell the bulk of them, as long as those are taken care of it, it's not just an afterthought, which I don't think anyone really does anymore. I think, great, you know, as long as the lower end of the market's taken care of, then, you know, show everyone your nine grand bike. Brilliant. I'm all for it. It's nice. You know, they, they look amazing. They're great to ride. They're really... They're really amazing to, you know, it's lucky for us that we get the opportunity to ride them. Um, but I'm not going to go out and buy a nine grand bike, but I'll no. be really, I'll be really, I guess, uh, assured to know that, you know, maybe it is the same frame on a bike that costs a third of the price. And you know that it works really well because it's had all the same R&D. It's had all the same effort, design analysis, everything that's gone into it, all the engineering but maybe the material is different, you know, and it, but it doesn't detract from the ride quality. And obviously all the components are different. They're one or two tiers down. That's fine by me because I know that the foundation of it is going to be brilliant, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess the thing with with these bikes is often it's that trickle down thing that we we often talk about in, in bike design. So uh, looking at the the new specialized Epic, for example, the you get the S Works bike, which is ten and a half grand. Uh, the next level down bike is seven and a bit grand, and the difference predominantly is the S Works one gets its um, you know it's now twelve m uh, fact twelve m carbon, and the the next level down is you know the fact eleven m carbon which is now across the whole range. But the last generation S-Works was that same 11M carbon. So, you know, these things sort of get better and better. But over the course of the generations of the bike, that all does come down. You know, you see now like, what is it, DR12 speed, you know, only a couple of years ago, that was only XTR. So, mm. and, and you need these halo products, you need these expensive ones to drive that development of new products that then make more accessible things cheaper down the line. Yeah, totally, totally. Cheaper and better. Yeah. I mean, I I would take, you know, an SLX 12-speed group set now over like a a, a 10-speed XTR one just because the shifting is probably, you know, across that new cassette, you know, with the new teeth profiles up and down, probably shifts better, you know, in in many ways. So you do benefit from those £10,000 bikes. They might seem obscene, but maybe just don't buy one. I don't know. I'm not going to go and buy a Ferrari as much as I'd love one. You're not? No, surprised. Yeah, you'd be surprised to hear. I, I probably couldn't. <laughs> probably. I like probably. That. Yeah, maybe probably. not. Probably not. Maybe I'll... a matchbox model of one. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say you're going to just go and check your post office account after this, just yeah. in case. Yeah. Get a big win on the premium bonds next month. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the the our final little. Uh, Topic of debate is is the age old uh, clipless pedals, which actually you clip into, um, and and flat pedals. So I ride pretty much exclusively clips uh, because uh, I don't like change. Um, I know Al, you ride flats virtually all the time. Am I right in thinking? Uh, and Rob, you flip between the two because you're ambidextrous. Uh, you know what? I think it's probably because I I prefer flat pedals for the most part. Mm-hmm. But I I can't ride them as well as I'd like to. Right. Basically, I can't ride like Sam Hill. I mean, who can? Or I can't <laughs> ride like Alex Evans. Who can? So I put clips on Mate. to try and compensate. <laughs> right. <laughs> because uh, I know I you know and I and I do everything I can in my power to basically set them up. I mean, you can't set them up so they feel like flat pedals. But I move my cleat back because it, and I sit it as close to the midfoot as I can because. That's, you know, where I'd position my foot on a flat pedal. So I try and, you know, mimic that almost. Um, I ride Crank Brothers pedals because I like the fact that I have some movement on them, just like I can adjust my feet on flat pedals. So all those little things that that try to make it a sort of similar experience means that I'm able to switch between the two. And, and you know, I, I generally, you know, I guess even now I, I still happily hit jumps on, either but i probably prefer jumping on flat pedals um when it's wet there's nothing better than sticking flat pedals on and you know screaming down a steep hill because you know you know you don't have to really take your feet off as much you don't feel like you're trapped on the bike and and you have that you know i guess the confidence knowing that you can bail if you need to whereas you don't always have that on clips equally if i knew i was going to go and do an enduro race or in fact a downhill race i'd put clips on because I want to be, it's one less thing to worry about. You don't have to think, 
oh, you know, I'm going to hit this section and it's so rough. I can't get my bike set up well enough to absorb all of that. I know my feet are going to start to bounce off. So I'll just clip in and I don't have to worry about it. So you're saying that the, the difference really is, is a, a technique or a, a skill set thing to, to get the most out of flat pedals takes a bit more than it does to, to take them, get the most out of, out of the clips. Well, I think you need to be really confident in clips to ride them um, to the fullest. And I guess you look at the, the, the top races, that's, they, they can switch between the two, but you know they'll, they'll confidently hit stuff, feet up, no problem, because they know exactly what they're doing. Whereas I guess if my, my confidence is maybe missing a little bit on a really steep track, knowing that I can just take a foot off on flats is way better. Equally... Yeah, the, the the technique thing on flat pedals, I think to ride them really, really fast, I think is really hard, which is why you've seen so many, so many riders over the years in downhill slowly, slowly, you know, gravitate to clipless pedals. You know, um, Conor Fearon spent a while going back and forth. He's now just sat, you know, stuck with flats. Um, Brendan did a few races on clips because he could sort of see the benefits, but you know, some of the Kiwi guys like uh, Blenkinsop was, you know, he won his only World Cup on flat pedals and now he's clipped in constantly. Brooke McDonald, same, Win Masters, you know, he was a diehard flat pedal rider for a long time and now he's he's clipped in on his downhill bike all the time. Um, and I'm sure it's the same for, for more, you know, over the years. But yeah, I think to ride flat pedals fast is harder than riding clip pedals fast. Speaking of riding flat pedals fast, do you want to weigh in on this, Alex? Oh, for, for me, the, the flat pedal is like the the thoroughbred sensation of mountain biking. <laughs> it's like... It, it like <laughs> Don't over-egg it or anything. No, I'm not over-egging it. it. It just like, it epitomizes everything about the bicycle for me. Oh, you're wearing your, your loafers, are you? Just want to hop on your bike and go for a quick spin. Oh, no worries. You could do that. You've got flat pedals on it. Don't have to put any fancy disco slippers on. Oh, I've been out shredding all day long on the big mountains. Yeah, I took my foot off and did a massive drift around that turn. Felt awesome. Flat pedals. You know, all right, maybe those things aren't very well linked. But, <laughs> you know, for me, it's like an emotional thing. The flat pedal is like, yeah, I, I ride flats and I'm proud of it. And I can't really even explain why. Wow, so it's kind of like the true experience of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my experience is that I, I love it, and I absolutely love them. And you know, fine. Yeah, my feet jump off a few times, and yeah, you just just get on with it. Do a few little bounce arounds on your saddle on your bum. But you know, I'm I'm not Sam Hill, so I'm not good enough. But it it just feels amazing. You just feel amazing. Like you you're like more on the edge, and you can feel the bike better because you know it's like pushing up into your feet, and oh, it's just like yeah. I can't even describe it. I can't. It's just undescribable feeling of awesome. Well, we we should be videoing this this Zoom chat because you can see how emotional you are about flat pedals. This is incredible. His laptop's about to oh. fall off, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's how I, I that's how I feel about clips, though. Like I I want that in it, like beautiful connection between bike and and shoe, which is provided by the clip. I mean, I've never really ridden flats a huge amount because I value the skin on my shins. Um, and also, I mean, I, I, I can bunny hop with flats, but I, I don't have, I guess, the, the confidence to, I mean, maybe it's my lazy technique then. Maybe, maybe after 
well, it must be like 16, 17 years of riding clips. I'm, I'm too ingrained into the being properly connected to my bike as opposed to having some silly interference where your feet might pop up. You know, like if your handlebars, right, had like flat pedals on to, to shift and you, oh, yeah, can really feel the bars. Like, you know, you, you're holding on. Like, and I want the same with my pedals. I want to be like connected properly as opposed to just resting on them, gently hoping that my feet don't slip <laughs> off at some inordinate point and take all the skin off my shins and, and dig a claw into my shin bone. <laughs> as right in the sense that I think uh, cornering on them, you, you can't, you know, I think cor- doing, a, doing a loose corner or, or linking turns together on flat pedals where you're really pushing hard it feels better. It does. It's true. You, I think. I think probably. Uh, well, that's probably a really subjective thing. Well, it is a really subjective thing. But maybe for me, it's because I feel more confident doing that on the flat pedal versus the control. Maybe that clips would bring means that I can't ride in quite the same way. I can't guess. ride as loose. Yeah, probably. Or I'm not confident enough to ride, to ride yeah. as loose. And maybe the byproduct is I ride. I could probably ride it as fast, but in a more controlled way. Mm-hmm. If that if that makes sense. Do you think there's a bit of a shift going back towards uh, towards flats? You know, like uh, over the years, I think a lot of people have migrated to you know for trail riding. You know, if we talk out with the pros, you know, trail riders quite often did ride clips. But do you think there's now you know with great pedals, great shoes? I, I talk about it every winter. This winter, I'm going to learn to ride flats properly. Do you think that's uh, actually happening across the board, or do you think people are still in their two camps and that's that's that? Mm, I don't know. I think, like you said, there is way more options now. In, you know, and there's, you don't even need to buy five tens to get decent flat pedal shoes like you used to. Um, and God, you know, when I started on flat pedals. It was terrifying. They were, you know, you clipped in because there were no real decent options until, you know, 510 really sort of came around. Um, but, yeah, it feels like, well, it depends. It depends what people want to work on. It depends what people want to get out of their riding, whether that's a, whether it is a trend or not. I'm not totally sure. I still feel that um, the mountain bike market is pretty fickle. Um, and I don't mean that in a nasty way. It just means, you know, there's certain people that, you know, certain riders that people want to emulate. And I remember, you know, when Sam Hill started making big waves on the scene, I happened to be in Australia at the time. And you'd go up to like a national race in Oz and every rider would be on an iron horse with flat pedals. It was, you know, it was crazy. And he's still doing the same in Enduro. And you see even between the pros, a lot of their them on Instagram will have just, you know, they can't get their head around what Sam's just done for a season riding flat pedals. So they spend the winter sticking flat pedals on. Just going, oh, I'll just try it. I'll just, I'll do some timing just to see. I'll have a go. I'll see if it works. And I think it'll be the same, you know, if someone in a group of mates tries to do it, I think it'll be, you know, there's always going to be those knock-on effects. You know, no one wants to miss out, right? No one wants to see someone really improve having stuck those fat platters on and then they're not going to give it a go themselves so yeah I, I guess it's it's kind of dependent on what they want to get out of it and if they will but now's the best time to try it you know 20 years mm-hmm. ago was you could do it but you were guaranteed to you know properly shin yourself and it's maybe less likely now <laughs> all right give well, it a go, I'll, Tom. I'll, I'll get my uh, i'll get my football shin pads out uh, my sondicos 
uh, wear them <laughs> under my uh, long socks. And uh, how about this, Al? If I do the flat pedals, Al, you spend the winter riding clips, all right? <laughs> I don't agree to those terms. <laughs> All right, a day. Those terms are not. A, a yeah. day. I'll do a day. I'll, I'll do a day on them, but you, you've got to be there behind me when I do a power wheelie and flip over the back. And all right, well I'll be in my clips me. and I'll try not to stab my shins. All right, put some big elbow pads on Al. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, so um, that's obviously a fairly controversial one there, especially with Al. Um, but I think we'll, we'll we'll wrap it up there. Um, thanks very much for for listening to the, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe um, so it gets beamed to your phone automatically every Monday and every Friday. Um, thank you very much, Rob, for your time. Appreciate that. Cheers, Tom. Thanks, Al. And and thanks, Al. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll yeah see you in the next one. See ya. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Radar.